The next revolution will be hidden, literary, nomadic, and nonviolent. Hello and welcome. I am William Morgan, and this is 42 Minutes, a production of SyncBook Radio and TheSyncBook.com, a weekly conversation with the interesting artists and thinkers of our day. You can find us online at 42minutes.com, and we suggest you liking The SyncBook on Facebook to stay in the loop on everything going on. Today, on this 11th day of February, for episode number 123, we're going to check in with hyperconsciousness and the spirit of endings to find out what's become of data and a fluid culture here at the end of all things. A man stands still. He's suffocating. Transparent walls rise up around him on all sides, clear as glass. But he doesn't know that they are there. There's a ringing in his ears, a vast clamor of voices, opinions, and messages telling him relentlessly that he is free to choose, free to dream, even free to rebel if that's what he chooses to do. It's not the clamor of a department store. It's not talk radio. He's not in a movie theater. Like the six billion other people on the planet, he's locked inside the new architecture of the United World. He's heard a thing or two about his prison, this world, this world we live in now. It's all there is. There's nothing left outside it, and there's no other world possible. Or there's no such thing as distance anymore. Or again, only capitalism is truly revolutionary. And finally, the world today is complete, one, and indivisible. He can't remember where he first heard these ideas. He doesn't know who decided it should be that way. All he really knows is that sometime in the not-so-distant past, capital had licked its lips one last time and swept the last anti-establishment vestiges at the corner of its mouth into its gullet. And boom, the now was here to stay. He'd gone through many changes in his search for a way out. He fought to improve the lot of the third world. Later on, he'd become a situationalist. Next came Trotskyism. Some of his friends from that period are still in prison for terrorism. When punk came along, heroin in tow, he had done both. This, he had figured, might finally be what he was waiting for. He'd OD and go out with a big fuck you. Finally, he settled for resignation. And really, resignation wasn't all that bad. <laughs> After all, the new architecture of the United World is democratic and generous. In the now, human beings are born with equal rights, including the right to happiness. Through education and work, every single one of them has a chance to acquire every single convenience of every modern lifestyle. And finally, doesn't the now guarantee peace among all nations? Doesn't it hold out the promise of economic development to poor countries everywhere? Anyway, the suffocating man said to himself, if capital co-ops everything, even the best and most driven critics, then why fight? You get fed, right? Outrage, resistance, fighting the power, subversion, revolt, revolution, it's all so last century now. And the suffocating man was not mistaken. Capitalism's project had changed. Capitalism had become so thoroughly modern, so thoroughly postmodern as well, that frankly even those who rejected capitalism looked conservative. From within the corridors of economic and cultural power, now the same power, the malcontents now just looked like people who didn't know how to have a good time. What was their problem, anyway? 
Good morning, Douglas Bowles here, and today on 42 Minutes, we have the pleasure of meeting Camille de Toledo, filmmaker, screenwriter, and novelist. Mr. de Toledo is the author responsible for 2008's Coming of Age at the End of History, translated by Blake Ferris, from which I just read in the introduction. Camille de Toledo studied literature in Paris, history in London, photography and filmmaking in New York, and is considered one of the voices of his generation. It's an honor to be speaking with him today. Good morning. How are you doing today? Fine, fine, fine. From Berlin. <laughs> Wonderful. Hello. Hello. It's uncanny to me how you conceived of a now, but then also a little later, now becomes the transcendent zeitgeist of our culture that culminates in the end of the world on December 21st, 2012, unifying in the forces of Terence McKenna's pure novelty, Eckhart Tolle's All Connected Now, and the Silicon Valley's cult of the singularity and superconsciousness. Your now is the new architecture of the United World as you witnessed it in the 90s. What is this architecture that you speak of, and uh, how has it changed since you wrote about it when you were in your 20s? Right, so the first uh, the year the book was published in in France was two thousand two, and you're right, it was uh, it was coming of age between two events, which was the fall of the Berlin Wall and the fall of the Twin Towers, and I was uh, you know trying to grasp to understand what kind of uh, consciousness had uh, risen or tried to rise between those two collapse between those two events. Um, I think it has changed, but as I was listening to the to the reading, I was thinking, well, not so much in a way. <laughs> um, the things that have changed is that uh, certainly people are not fed, <laughs> and uh, um, but certainly what has not changed is the fact that it's very hard to think about. Uh, a dissident way of living and thinking and 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 thinking about disruption is still very very hard and we we had in the in the past few years very big movements in in Europe called occupy that were also happening in the states and i think you know this is also another occurrence or example we had in the 90s we had the no global movements which started with the zapatistas in 94 and 1994 and i was speaking a lot of this dissent this dissident uh, movement and then this was destroyed uh, after 911 you know there was this idea that you're either with us or against us so you could not criticize from the inside of the Western world. And then we're redoing as a sort of eternal uh, coming back of the same uh, story with the Occupy movement, where it has been uh, basically, you know, oppressed, destroyed, uh, and impeached. And uh, there is a great, uh, Peter Sloterdijk, the German philosopher, calls, calls it you know, les banques de la colère, uh, the banks of anger. I think the banks of anger are full. I think they're totally full. Mm. I think they, they uh, but the thing is, what, what is the path? How do you make politics with this anger? 
How do you build future with, with this angle? Uh, and to go back to your question, I think you're talking about posthumanism and singularity. And uh, I think this just melts with, with, with the capitalist order. And, and it's a very West Coast way of thinking. But, the, you know, the, the rest of the world is, is still uh, striving struggling in this sort of human horizon with death and hunger. And, and they're living this sort of sci-fi, childish, you know, uh, uh, technological environment, uh, already thinking about, you know, this post-human horizon, ignoring the fact that in this horizon there will be lords and there will be slaves because no one is at the same level for this. And I think it's the, gris, you know, the, the great ignorance or blindness of this new hope coming from the West side of the United States. They're, they're leaving morals. They're leaving ethics. And the fact that Kurzweil, for instance, yeah. who is Jewish, who is from Jewish descent, who's coming from this Jewish, you know, Europe, in a way, is leaving this humanist and, and approach of Europe, I think means a lot of what happens when you move from a Jewish Europe to a, an Amer you know, United States and West Coast. You know, you pass the border, you pass the mountains, you go to the other way, and, and everything's become positive, and you, you believe you can suppress <laughs> negativity, you know. But there is negativity, and, and we know about it in Europe. And now it's become you know, very clear that, 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 uh, that people like Kurzweil are not thinking anymore about uh, the, the, the uh, inequalities that are hiding behind this post-human horizon. Of course, there will be people who will have money to transform and to chase death, you know, but there will be death as long as there will be humans. And in the way I think uh, the, the, the sort of dissident way of thinking is still thinking about negativity, not in the sense of worshipping negativity, which has become the case in Europe, you know, worshipping shame and worshipping negativity, but but. Uh, carrying on with this negativity as death, because this is what makes us human. Hmm. One of the things you outline is this notion of transgression becoming transformation and speaking towards that disembodied movement that was happening or that you witnessed in the 90s. What are your thoughts on, on that? I mean, you spoke a little bit about it, but what are your thoughts on that now? Has it, does it seem like it's become even more so? Well, I would say that in, in Coming of Age at the End of History, the book that you read, there was at the time for me a sort of attention towards the use of Deleuzean theory in the art world. And the art world is always the avant-garde of mondialité, of globalization in a way, of market, of deterritorialization. And certainly there was in the 90s, you know, the birth or the emergence of this, this belief of in flux, 
and and nomadic. And I think, uh, you know, if we go back to the movements, the revolutionary movements of the 20th century and internationalism and socialism, and there was there was also this uh, cosmopolitan uh, uh, transfrontier idea, but it was very well rooted in poverty. The, the, the shift that happened at the end of the 20th century is that this capture of the theme of internationalism by the markets and the movements in the 90s that were struggling against globalization were all about re-territorialization. So reminding that there is a body, that there is materiality, and that humans are rooted and disrooted and re-rooted. And this happens to migrants and it happens, you know, all over the world where when you have to, you know, leave your country, go to somewhere else to make a living. And therefore, we are now in a situation which is kind of hard to think in a modern way, or except if we say that modern is being a body and, 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 you know, and, and, and this modernity that is flux is actually a, a, a dishumanizing way, is the fact that the, the, the framework of thinking about progress and reaction is par dessus tête is is just totally reverted and and uh, now I I wouldn't say it has changed a lot from the 90s I think everything was already there and it the tensions are all still the same there are people who have the means to think about themselves as flux. And in French, the title was Archimondin, sort of archy world, hyper world. There, there are people who have means to, to think about themselves as flux, as nomadic. They have the means to travel. And the great deal of humanity doesn't. Now, the question or the political question or the philosophical question is, how do you uh, bring this theme of modernity back to the body? How do you remind, you know, the artistic community or the intellectual community that they have a responsibility towards the body, meaning re-territorialization, thinking about re-territorialization in a non-reactionary way? And what we're seeing now in Europe is, is very telling in a way because you have two reactions to this global Europe market-oriented Euroland in Brussels. One is movements of re-territorialization that see themselves as leftists and this was Occupy. And then you have a very, very, very strong reactionary movements talking about re-territorialization as identity as culture in a way, but not culture as a way to, you know, tr translation, or to transpass or to learn or to emancipate, but culture as a way to root back to identity. Those are two re-territorialization. Re they have the same, you know, enemy in a way, 
but they mean something very different. And, and, and the, and the, the uh, rhetoric of capitalism is to throw them both to the same uh, reactionary movement. As you're both reactionary in a way, is what the capitalist system is saying, is because you're not about deterritorialization. And, and it's, it's very hard still to, to think about that. It's really reverting the way we think about things and using, you know, those technologies that are about uh, deterritorialization to, to claim body, to claim humans. So this is what also is happening with uh, 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 digital humanities. You know, digital humanities is, is a way to oppose, and, and this is how I read it, the emergence of digital humanities is, 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 is a way to, to oppose this post-humanist uh, uh, utopia that is very West Coast still. Today's the 42nd day of the year, <laughs> and in, in your book you speak about Du Bois' 42nd thesis that says the spectacle is the moment when the commodity has attained the total occupation of social life. We recently looked at Du Bois as a character in a book that we spoke about on this program. I don't know if our audience knows what became of him and his ideas. Could you tell us a little bit about who he was and then what became of him? Well, yeah, I mean, you know, was main figure of situationism. Uh, his ideas uh, were came out in the 50s, 60s after... International Lettriste, L'International Lettriste. Uh, uh, it became one of the themes in the uh, 68, 1968 movement in France. Uh, this sort of bourgeois uh, Maoist revolution had also a situationist branch. Uh, the, the main, the main uh, if there is, I would say, uh, cleverness, and there is, in Du Bois' standpoint is to reformulate Marxism into s spectacle, into uh, economics of images and, and producing spectacle. So it was no longer capital, it was spectacle. And term by term, you can switch from Marxist theory to situationism. And uh, so this was still very underground in, this, in, in the 70s. And then it grew because spectacle became this big thing, entertainment and spectacle. Uh, I would rather see Guy Debord as a desperate poet in a way. He was a good French writer. He, he was a very good uh, writer. Uh, He's, he's, he has, uh, um, yeah, it's, it's, it's beautiful, most of it. It's also, <laughs> in a way, very desperate. Mm. But if you see him as a theoretician or a, a theoretician, then theorist, then you become a way disappointed by the use of his thoughts, first of all. And then also you start to say that he was wrong on most of the themes because 
by focusing on spectacle. And I think this has to do with the hierarchy of our senses. We are obsessed by the eyes. The panopticon, the spectacle, you know, the political order on one side, where you see, and this is Foucault, and on the other side, this sort of uh, oppression by spectacle is both linked to the eye. But if we attach importance to the other senses, touch and, and ear and, and, and hearing, then you relate to the invisible. And I think this is where things are happening now in the invisible wow this is this is what uh happened with l'insurrection qui vient and julien coupa in a way of the coming insurrection it's about invisibility things that really care that that that, that really are happening are in real life which is invisible to spectacle and it invisible to power and uh this also was in the theme, I think, of uh, autonomous zones in the 90s. And it's carrying on. Um, and I think the, the main tension now is this attempt of power to get in hold of the invisible. Uh, this idea with Julien Assange and, and transparency, and it is a way where power says we want, you know, the, the counterculture says we want to bring visible what you're making invisible, saying to power. And then the power is saying the reverse, saying we will not allow these things to happen in this invisibleness in the way. We want your names, you know. We want, we don't, we don't want anything to happen only for the senses, the other senses. And we can read a lot of the cultural, you know, struggle, uh, even in religion, in religious matters, with this attention to senses, where, you know, one religion will say, the Jewish religion will say, we are not, you know, we can't see God, we can't represent it. And then in the Muslim religion also, you cannot, you're not allowed. This is forbidding, you know, the eye, in a way. This is forbidding this representation. It's a good way to avoid and to contest power. And, and the, the Western way doesn't bear this. They, they can't cope with it. They have to see. They have to see everything. And they, they, they will have to, exter you know, exteriorize everything. And uh, this is, yeah, Howard, uh, you know, kind of carry on. The Debord error is this obsession with the eye, <laughs> which also goes with, if we look about entertainment and spectacle with I and I, you know, I will, my ego will happen in the scene, in the obscene, it will be shown. So I and I go together. Do you think this is why the resistance became masked in the 90s? Definitely. 
so that it's going to take the I out of the equation. I mean, even the Occupy movement, uh, they cloak themselves in anonymity. Yeah, well, absolutely. Uh, it's, it's, it, it, it is in a way, it's paradoxical to say this, but it is obvious that we don't want to be seen, that we want things to happen in the unseen, because an unseen being also like unseen in the scene is is the the stage, you know, because we don't want things to happen on stage or it's it's very hidden stages, because as soon as and this is why I love radio too. <laughs> uh, no, but it's true. I never go on on shows on because I think you know the. It's immediately striking the way words sound differently when they're shown, when they're put on stage, and when they're un- you know when they when they don't have faces. Uh, there's there, there's much more power in, in 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 the eye than in the ears. Well, you speak about that. You say that at some point. The real became an image, and so critic- social criticism became more like film criticism, where we could speak about reality in the abstract, and it was a way of participating, but not really having to be accountable to what was happening in the world. Well, yeah, certainly, and I think this is still very true. There's, there's, there's too much of that uh, uh, a media criticism, which is only uh, um, increasing this sentiment of powerlessness. We don't have power when we're uh, uh, condemned to just criticize images or the reality as image. What we need is, you know, reincarnation, if I was to speak in a sort of, you know, post-Christian, which is not my case, of course, but there, there, there is a need to think about re-territorialization as reincarnation, meaning reincarnate ourselves as you know societies, as people, as uh, uh, yeah, as humans, and 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 this has also in mind. You know, I have in mind the fact that we we have to bring back death into our lives. And so, yeah, we, we reached a point where we are linked to the first question is, we have, we, we have tried in the Western world to, to conceal, to hide death. You know, now, as Kurzweil would say, we're trying to, to transcend it, to, to erase it. And uh, because we don't, this is the things we don't want to see. This is where the body is lying. And, 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 you know, the whole question also in Facebook and the social networks of, of erasing death, you know, leaving your data for, for centuries after you, or the impossibility of the digital world to think about, uh, uh, forgetting i think here there's an issue you know of of really changing our minds and saying no it is our responsibility to carry on with this idea of we will die 
And as we are dying, we will live. And as we will live, you know, we will be bodies living, connecting to, 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 to each other. This is, you know, it's, it's, it would be a big change. Unfortunately, uh, we have lost something with the fall of communism. And I'm not speaking as a nostalgic uh, person, but if I am nostalgic of something, I would say that for a whole century, which is the 20th century, there was an alternative ideology that was a school for people, a school for the people, a school for poor people, a school of criticism, but also a school of emancipation. People, you know, in Bengal, in India, in the, in the third world, in, in, in Europe, of course, uh, they had this, uh, this popular school that was telling them, you might not be able to free yourself from, you know, an economic system or alienation or spectacle, but you will learn. You will learn and, and, and you will learn more about the, the system in which you, you are maintained. And as this school, and I would really coin it as a school, a popular school of emancipation, was dropped down in the gutter saying, you know, with the rest. So with, you know, with the Orwellian totalitarian communism, it was thrown in the gutter saying, no, everything has to be thrown. Even the attempt, even the endeavor to emancipate in learning, in reading, in teaching, etc. And in a way, this is also how I think of the differences in art forms. There is the cinema that is overwhelming. There is video gaming now, which is, has to do with Debord and this sort of fictional intoxication in which we are maintained. If you think about Breaking Bad, it's obvious. The series is pure fictional intoxication. It's addiction. It's drugs. Now, I don't have any problem with drugs as, as long as you're aware that you're maintained in this sort of intoxicated reality. And mm -hmm. if, you compare, if you compare it to the other art form, which is books, in a way, books are much more dangerous because they maintain this invisibleness and they maintain this, you know, relation with what is not seen, with what can't be shown, with interiority. And interiority is negativity in a way. It is what's inside. It's an illusion, of course, but if you maintain this illusion, then you maintain the possibility to nourish yourself and to respond to the spectacle of the world which is imposed on you. I heard you say a phrase that I would like for you to elaborate on a little bit. And that phrase was, advertising is the opposite of art. Well, I would like that to be true. 
Um, <laughs> <laughs> Has art become the spectacle since you wrote your book? Uh, it was already, I think. It has become a market, and it has become this, you know, the avant-garde of, of, of speculation. Uh, it, it, it is, if we look at the art market, it's really a lesson about how capitalism functions now. You know, creating value with nothing, or you know, or just creating value with just the remaining object, but then really uh, pure in a pure speculative form. And we know now that you know certain collectioners throughout the world who are part of this archimonde, this hyperworld, as soon as they invest on an object of art, they know the price of this object will gain you know, by 10, 20%, just because their name is attached to this object. So it's, it's really the avant-garde if we look at the market. But again, if we have this obsession with what is on the scene, on stage, then we lose the attention to what is unseen. And there are mm. a lot of and there are a lot of maturing art forms that remain, you know, in out of or on the side of. And after a long period of time, and this is how I think we can judge also, you know, it, it becomes work, it becomes a trace, it becomes an archive of a human being. And in that sense, I think we shouldn't judge and reject. Because the art market is has is, is become this sort of speculative uh, platform, we should not reject uh, 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 the whole process of creation and art. On the contrary, it's just a question of where we stand. And I think where the artist stands. We now see, and I know a few young artists, who have this very speculative way of thinking about their work, I mean, it's good for them, you know. They will make money. But then there is another way also of just creating, uh, which also at some point can be worth something for some collectioner. And this is not a problem in itself. The fact is, where do you stand? Are you, are you, you know, running towards the market and adopting a very cynical approach towards the meaning of your work, which is an option, and then you collaborate, and it's fine. It's fine in the way that, you know, at the end of time, if there is, you know, <laughs> a conscience, you know, you will just address it and say, well... This is what I made in my life. I wanted to be known. I wanted to make money, and I made it as an artist. But then there is this other way. I don't know if you know if we take Bansky, for instance. Mm -hmm. Where does he? Where does he stand? Where does he stand? Certainly, he does stand in the invisible. You know, and if I take the story of this collectioner who went all the way to Gaza, and I think it was not Gaza, it was Ramallah, and he bought a piece of of a, a Palestinian house where Bansky had made a graffiti, a, 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 a work, an artwork, and bought the wall, destroyed the house, but then allowed the, the man with the money to rebuild a whole new house. 
you know, those are kind of fun, funny and, and graceful displacement of, of thinking about money and market and, and art. We have an artist who is in the invisibility, who lives, leaves a trace of his passage as a Walter Benjamin kind of figure, you know, leaving traces of his being there and not saying who he is. And then a house of a Palestinian destroyed, but then rebuilt with the money of the art market. So, you know, there's resistance, there is, there is money, there is involved. So, so I don't have a, a unique way of thinking about the art. I think, again, it is not good for our minds to be just obsessed with the market. We have to have more attention to what is left, you know, in the invisible. How does one become invisible? Did I? No. I said, how, do, how does one become invisible? I mean, how does, how does one use, use that, that insight to, to produce, like, their own art? Well, I would say there have been, and, and I think this would be an interesting, I was planning to do a book about the, the, the different occurrences of in, invisibility, because according to the different art forms of the different scenes, it's not the same, and, it, and, and, and in time it also evolves. Salinger was invisible, Blanchot was invisible, Debord was invisible. He was drinking like a drunkard in a bar, you know, most of the time. No one was paying interest to him. And, and he, he just disparate and drinking. Uh, Salinger just, uh, he, he enclosed himself. He, he, he disappeared. He said farewell to this, to this literary scene. Uh, but anyway, if we go to our times, Daft Punk, you know, at the very heart of, of you know, the... You, you don't know who they are. That's a good point. They're totally invisible. They're masked. Yeah, I, I must even say that something made me really laugh at some point because I received a message. I don't know if it was true or false, but there was a picture of the, what was it, the awards in America? The Grammys. Was, yeah, the Grammys. They were there. They, I think they got a lot of prizes there, didn't they? Yes, yes. Yeah, and, and, and there was this image circulating on the web saying, oh, they were not actually behind their mask. They were in, this, in, in the audience looking at the performance and he had pictures. Of, <laughs> like, oh, here they are, and 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 no, but nobody pays because they have created avatars, and 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 I think this is also very very interesting because it's a situation where they are at the very heart of of the entertainment machine, and at the same time they're totally preserved, absolutely preserved. Uh, now this is not, you know, I'm not judging their music at this point, you know. I'm not saying whether it's interesting or not. This is to others to say. But the symptom and the situation they built is interesting. It's interesting. And it's not Salinger, but it's it's kind of it's it's you know, it's 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 different way of thinking about invisibility. You begin the book with a quote saying that the only way to diagnose one's times is to be intoxicated by one's times, which is interesting because you, you have to be in the fishbowl to know about the water. What, what are your thoughts on that now, and, and what do you, what, how, do you, how do you feel about the book so many years later? 
Well, first question is the the intoxication question. And then then how do I relate to the book is the, the path that I have been, you know, following since then. First of all, you know, the book could have, well, be for me an opportunity to become this media figure. You know, I was 25. It became this generation book. But then I withdrew. In a way, I, I, I built this also way of disappearing and, and not, you know, standing as this figure. So I left the book, Have His Own Life. So in a way, I think I, I've been faithful to what was there in this book. Uh, second is the path that I've been drawing since. And, well... I went more into literature and poetic forms, tales and stories that still have this politics and still carry this politics of invisibility and and meaning. Meaning and, and, and book as thought as a code that links people beyond the eye, you know? And so I've been faithful to that. I've also been thinking a great deal about, in a European context, how do you, uh, you know, how do you think of a political space that is beyond nations, that is beyond linguistic differences, uh, and creating this network called the European Society of Authors, uh, building gradually month and year after year, a kind of poetical response that will culminate this year in Berlin in a program called Secession, and which is a way of disrupting with the actual political order in Europe. Uh, so, yeah, I've been mostly faithful to everything that is there. Um, and the question of the intoxication is another one. I was in September in NYU and New York and New York University and I made this address or conference about fictional intoxication. And mm-hmm. and this movement uh, where I was I was yeah, I was taking the film by Spielberg Shark. Does that make any Jaws. sense? Jaws. Jaws, yeah. In French, it's different. <laughs> but it's my childhood, so yeah. And it was Les Dents de la Mer. It was the, the jaws of the sea. <laughs> and, 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 and opposing jaws to Moby Dick. And, and jaws is, would, could be seen, could be read as what happened to our little minds with fiction. You know, the shark being. Uh, the yeah the kind of entertainment machine the production of fiction this fictional intoxication that is eating our little brains you know as ch- as children and then later on as grown ups and if you compare it to Moby Dick and Melville the you know the whale and is is something that is a transcending force you can never see it you really see Invisible. it it's just invisible. You never see it. It's this really just transcending force that is driving the whole universe. And, 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 
And, and there is still separation. There is still in this book, you know, the, the, the leg of Ahab, of Ahab is, is Ahab in French, is, is cut. And now we all, you know, we feel emerge in this motherly fiction. And we're all maintained into this, this intoxication. And so I was asking whether books, literature, have, you know, might have become a detox therapy, <laughs> a way of, you know, getting out, of, of maintaining, sustaining the idea of there is an, out, an outside. And as soon as you say there is an outside, as you say there is death, or there are, there are books, or there is meaning that is beyond what is seen, or there is meaning behind sounds that is, you know, motherly. As soon as you say this, then there's, again, interiority. And then there are, you know, conscious. There is conscious. There is consciousness. As soon as, you know, you nourish yourself. And in, in the opposite direction, there is this, you know, great uh, uh, immersion in this motherly fiction in which we are all intoxicated and we think we maintain a certain level of consciousness, but uh, no true alternative can be built. That was 42 minutes. Thank you for sharing it with us. We, we sure have appreciated it. Thank, thank you very much. I hope... Uh, it was as you usually built the shows. <laughs> it went very well, actually. You have been listening to Camille de Toledo on SyncBook Radio, production of thesyncbook.com. More information about the work of Mr. De Toledo can be found at toledoarchives.net. For more information about the SyncBook, our guests, to check, you know, to check out past shows or to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes, please be sure and visit our website at 42minutes.com. If you'd like to support the show, we thank you in advance. You'll find the donation links under each episode on the website. Thanks, and remember, another world is possible.
A tourist in a dream, a visitor, it seems, a half-forgotten song. Where do I belong? Tell me what you see. I need something more. Kiss suddenly alive. Happiness arrive. Hunger like a storm. How do I begin? A room within a room. A door behind a door. Touch. Where do you lead? I need something more. What you see, I need something more.
touch, sweet touch. You've given me too much to feel, sweet touch. You've almost convinced me I'm real. I need something more. I need something more.